Well, it's very good to be back. I want to thank you for the invitation, Dave Anderson and the other elders. It's a trust I don't take lightly. I think you know that anyone who's heard me preach before. It's, this is a sacred opportunity, and I, I plan to steward the trust as faithfully as I can by God's grace. I do bring you greetings from Southern Seminary, but if you took me for preaching class, you would know I want to bring you greetings not merely from Southern Seminary. I want to bring you greetings from heaven. That's what preaching does. I'm going to open this word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I am crazy enough to believe 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says uh, God is actually making his appeal through ambassadors for Christ, and I come as an ambassador for Christ. So I'm praying, and we're going to pray here in a moment, that God would make an appeal through me as I open Romans 8. So would you pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, uh, we are asking you to do that. Would you cause us, preacher included, to not hear from a mere man this morning, but to hear from you? Would we have a message from heaven As we open your word, O God, I want to let it speak. So give me the grace, O God, to get out of the way to say what your word says so we truly hear from you. We need you for these things, Lord. Otherwise, this time will be in vain. These next 30, 40, 45 minutes will be in the flesh, and we beg of you to not let them be so. Help us to truly hear, to have ears to hear. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Even at my age, um, some of you know my story, and so you know why it's not so weird that I actually have toddlers at home still. Uh, I'm 50 years old now, and I've told my wife and others that I'll never be an empty nester. I may have told you that before. But I've got a three, a two, and a one-year-old at home. And parents, you know how this is. I love to read to my children, and I love to read particularly to Luke and Andrew, my three and two-year-old, because they can track with me. Henry, he's just a year, turned a year last month. He's, he's, you know, I can read to him, and I I read him scripture, but he's not tracking sometimes. I'm not sure how much. But the other night, just this week, I'm taking uh, the the older two of the three through Helen Taylor's, do you know this, Little Pilgrim's Progress? Have you read this? I, I commend it to you if you haven't. It's a wonderful adaptation of Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, but adapted for little ones. Well, we're in chapter 13 on, I think it was Tuesday night, and we come to the hill of difficulty. And you might remember how this opens up, and if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, that's okay. I'll just explain to you. It's this allegory about the Christian life. So here comes little Christian, not big Christian, because it's for little kids, little Christian, and he comes, and it's kind of ominous. It opens with a hill called difficulty. So here he comes, and he sees it, and he looks at it, and he's sizing it up, and he's realizing, ooh, The king's way leads right over that. I can't go to the right, can't go to the left, but there it is. And then meanwhile, he's looking at that, and and you remember the story, formalist and hypocrisy jump over the fence, right, over the gate. They don't go through the wicked gate like they're supposed to. They want to take a shortcut. They're going to be smarter than God, and they're going to go over the, the, the fence and join little Christian and say, hey, we're with you. We're going to the celestial city as well. And little Christian, by this point, you know the story, he's aware enough to go, Hey guys, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't think what you did is actually going to be agreeable with the king. You need to go through the wicked gate. You didn't do that. I really don't think this is a good idea. And they, of course, pile on a little bit and say, come on, what's the big deal? 
What's the big deal? We're in the same place right now, right? We just, we took a shortcut. You went the long way. We went the short way. Come on, what's the big deal? And Christian stays true and says, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I think you needed to go through the wicked gate. It's not a good idea to just hop the fence. They come to the hill of difficulty. Christian goes ahead, not wanting to really hang out with these guys, but formalist and hypocrisy kind of catch up, and they're realizing, oh, the hill of difficulty. They're looking at the same thing little Christian's looking at, but of course they draw a different conclusion. They say, hmm, why don't we just go around it? That, that doesn't look fun. That doesn't look uh, enjoyable. Why don't, and, and formalist says, I'll go to the left. Why don't you, hypocrisy, go to the right, and we'll just meet on the other side of the hill. Looks a lot easier as they size it up on either side. So, formalist goes to the left. And you know the story, some of you do. He spends many days in a dark forest. It looked nice early on, but then he ends up in a dark forest, loses his way, dies of starvation. A miserable death. Hypocrisy goes to the right, and it looked good early on, but all of a sudden he's dangling on the edge of a cliff, slips, falls, crashes on the sharp rocks below, and likewise dies a miserable death. The hill of difficulty, little Christian stayed on it. It was hard early on, got a little easier, but he stayed on the king's way. Well, my burden for you as I come to preach this morning is to help you be strengthened as you, likewise, are on a journey that is going to go over many hills of difficulty. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be climbing one right now. This pilgrim life on our way to our heavenly city is sprinkled, is that the right word? Is covered with many hills of difficulty. And really, every sermon is a means of your strengthening, right? By the grace of God, that's what these are intended for, to give you strength to endure as you walk the king's way. So, to that end, if you're not there already, would you turn with me to Romans 8? Romans 8, and I'm going to take up verses 14 to 17 this morning as a means, Lord willing, of helping you endure on the hill called difficulty which is the Christian life. It is the Christian life. So let me read these verses just to get them out before us and then we'll spend the remainder of my minutes in them. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, here it is, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see a hill of difficulty in this text, I do, but I also see a lot of grace, and I see a goal in mind. So let me give you the context very quickly. Paul has been trying to remind the Roman Christians, how do you live the Christian life? What uniquely marks a believer? What uniquely marks one who is born again, that has the Spirit of God? Well, he says in verse 12, if you're open there and you can, you can look at this, he says, so then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, 
or we are debtors, excuse me, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So he says it almost negatively. He says, this is how you don't live the Christian life. If you're a believer, if you're born again, you don't live as a debtor to the flesh. That is, living according to the flesh. Christians, in other words, do not live under the tyranny or mastery or dominion of sin anymore. You've been liberated from that. You've been freed from that. You've been transferred out of that domain of sin and death and the tyranny of it into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom of grace, the freedom of Christ. Christians don't live under the tyranny or mastery or dominion of sin. We're not debtors to the flesh. That is to live according to it. Now, this isn't a new theme. We're just kind of parachuting into Romans 8, but Paul's been talking about this in the book of Romans. Let me remind you of two places already he's mentioned this idea, Romans 6, two places in Romans 6. He opens that chapter by asking this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? That's right, by no means. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Answer, can't. We can't. We are no longer immersed in sin, living according to it. It's another way of saying we're not living as debtors to the flesh. Right? One more place in Romans 6, a little later on. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So talking about the tyranny, the dominion, the dictatorship of sin, we're no longer under that. We used to be, but in Christ, we're freed from that. We don't live as debtors to the flesh. Now, lest you think this isn't a big idea, Paul wants you to know that eternity is at stake in us getting this, how we live, right? And that's in verse 13. You can look at it with me. He gives a warning. He warns us this morning that eternity is at stake. Look at the front end of verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's got eternal death in view here. You will die an eternal death. You will be eternally condemned if you live according to the flesh. But, keep reading in verse 13, if by the Spirit, that is you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? Live. You'll have salvation. You'll have eternal life. So eternity is in view here. And of course the Bible always has eternity in view. We're so earthly minded, right? But the Bible's always thrusting us to keep our minds set on heavenly realities. Eternity. And here Paul is warning us that how you live, either according to the flesh or according to the Spirit, marks out where you're headed. Oh, that's all by way of context. Now, here we come to, to our text. And I want to make two observations about Spirit-led people. And I hope that's everybody in this room. Are you Spirit-led this morning? That is, are you a Christian? Are you born again? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, His person, His works, for your salvation, for your forgiveness of sins? If so, this is for you. Two observations about Spirit-led people. And for those that like to take notes, here they are. Number one, a glorious identity. 
He wants you to know, spirit-led person, that you have a glorious identity. A lot of talk today about identity. How do you identify? Paul wants you to identify with a glorious identity, and we'll look at that in a moment. Secondly, a necessary condition. We have to linger over the necessary condition that marks out one who has this glorious identity. So let's take each one in turn first. A glorious identity. And spoiler alert, here it is. Children of God. Children of God. Do you identify this morning as a Christian, as a child of God? Look with me at verses 14 and 15 and you'll see it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you are led by the Spirit of God, that is, if you're a Christian, then you are a child of God. Let that sink in, a child of God. No slavery to sin with corresponding fear of judgment, right? Romans 8 opens with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you don't have that fear of judgment. You now relate to God as your father, not your wrathful judge. He was that, but he's no longer that because of Christ and your union with him. We now put to death the deeds of the body by relating to God as our benevolent Father, right? That's how we put to death uh, sin in our life. That's how we mortify the flesh. We relate to God as our Father and we cry out to Him for all the grace we need to live this Christian life. In the battle against sin, we cry out to Him in the most personal of ways. Do you see it in the text? Abba, Father, Language escapes me to try to get at how personal, how intimate this, this phrase is in relating to God, Abba. How personal is this word for Father? How personal is it? It's the same word Jesus uses in crying out to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's in the shadow of the cross realizing what's in store for him. What does he say in Mark 14, 36? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, addressing the Father with Abba, Father, and Saint. This is how we get to address God. The same way Jesus did at this critical moment in the garden when he realizes what's going to be happening at the cross. He cries out, Abba, Father, I know you hear me. I know you love me. And if it is your will, take this cup from me. I don't want to endure this in the flesh. He's in his humanity crying out, but he defers to his loving heavenly Father because he knows the Father is infinitely wise, perfect in all his ways. Abba, Father, take this cup from me, if it be your will, but not my will, but yours be done. It's realities like this that cause the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 1, to tell us to behold, to look, to see what manner of love God has given us, the Father has given us, that we should be children of God, and that is what we are. 
Some of you, how do you come to declare this? How how do you come to, to cry out to God, Abba, Father? How does this happen? How does this miracle happen? Well, the apostle now in our text brings us to the great foundation of our assurance as believers. You see it there in verse 16. How does this come about? Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. If you in these pews this morning have any measure of cry out to God as Father, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you, testifying to your spirit that you are born again, that you are a believer, that you are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to it and to reap its wages, right? Which is is death. Hmm. The Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We just saw in verse 15 how by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. But now here in verse 16 we see it's the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. So we've got this mutual crying out going on in the heart of the believer. What a glorious mystery revealed. Now to deepen our assurance, Paul's not done. He draws out a profound implication of being the children of God. You see it there in verse 17? What's this profound implication of being adopted into God's forever family? And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Right now, friends, if you haven't been already, you should be looking at this text and saying something like David in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Are you used to this? Are you used to the fact, Christian, that, that you are, if a child, an heir of God? Even a fellow heir with Christ? With the Spirit's help, we must consider the wonder of being an heir of God, even a co-heir with Christ. And, and my effort to get at this, as I prepared for this, I'm thinking, how do, how do I try to understand how glorious this is, how marvelous this is, how audacious this is? I begin by asking, well, if I'm a co-heir of Christ, what is Christ? Because if I'm a, a co-heir with him, I want to know, what's he got? <laughs> what's his? Well, in a word... Friends, everything, everything, everything is Christ. It was about six years ago when I first had the privilege of preaching here. Some of you weren't here then, perhaps, but you were in an interim time. And I remember when Dave uh, reached out to me, I got to know him for the first time, and he asked me if I'd come. And the text I brought to you then was Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Let me read it to you again so you can hear how everything is Christ. Everything is Christ. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now who is his son? The one he appointed the heir of all things. Wow, what a son. The father has given to the son all things. He is the heir of everything. 
When you remember in Matthew 28, 18, the, the great commission, right? And what does he say to his disciples before he ascends to heaven? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, I'm the heir of all things. If you're the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth, everything's yours. Right? Everything is yours. If you're the one with all authority, that means there's nothing that's not yours. You are the preeminent one. You have all authority. Well, in fulfillment of Psalm 2, the nations are his heritage, the ends of the earth his possession. Indeed, every beast of the forest is his, the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus is the heir of all things. So you start there. And now read this text, co-heir with Christ. Co-heir with the one who owns everything. As a fellow heir with Christ, everything that is Christ is ours. <laughs> Which is why covetousness is so asinine and so ridiculous. Why would we, as the people of God, covet anything on earth? I'm a co-heir with Christ. Everything that is His which is everything, is mine because I'm in Christ, which is how Paul argues in 1 Corinthians, right? Remember the Corinthians? They had a lot of things wrong in their church, right? They had some things right, but they had a lot of things wrong. And one of the things, one of the awful things they had going on there was a lining up behind people, was an exalting of man and saying these cliques were forming, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And some said, I'm of Christ. Whoa as if Christ is in line with those others. 1 Corinthians 3, 21, 23. This is, this is the gospel logic that Paul says, Corinthians, what are you doing? You're acting crazy. So let no one boast in men, Paul says. So why would you boast in men? For all things are yours. Why, why, why would you care who's in your context? All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's why Jesus says to fearful saints in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the king. The kingdom. That's another word for everything. <laughs> it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's your father. You're a co-heir with Christ. He's going to hold nothing back from you, saint. He loves you that much as your heavenly father. Now, of course, our inheritance is of infinite worth because at its heart is God. Because you might think, well, what are these things? All are yours. Paul gives us a little bit of a list in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. But in a word, at the heart of our inheritance is God. Our inheritance will be the glorious fulfillment of the new covenant promise. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's the great heart of our inheritance. God, he saved us to bring us to himself, the fountain of all good Well, let me try to apply that reality this way. 
in picking up on a phrase that the world has hijacked from the church, and I want to take it back. A lot of talk today about privilege, right? A lot of talk today about privilege. I want you to be thinking very directly right now, very overtly, about Christian privilege, Christian privilege. See, the privilege I'm most interested in and concerned about for the church is Christian privilege. Is there any greater privilege than what the Christian has through union with Christ? There there is no greater privilege. You have, let's call it, Christian privilege. Gracious privilege. The privilege of being an heir of God even a co-heir with Christ. Therefore, we must bask and boast in this privilege, Christian. You are a co-heir with Christ, a privilege of infinite worth. It's a privilege we're not ashamed of, embarrassed by, or feel guilty about. On the contrary, it's a merciful reality we're amazed at and eternally grateful for, even as we long for everyone to have it, right? It's a privilege everybody can have through faith. And so we take this glorious inheritance in the saints, in light, and we take it to the nations, and we say, all of you can be privileged. All of you can have eternal privilege. That's the privilege we as a church of God need to be most preoccupied with. The privilege of being a child of God, and therefore, an heir of God, even a co-heir with Christ. Well, we could end right there, but Paul doesn't, so I can't. This is connected, my second of two points. That sounds wonderful, right? You want to be a child of God. You want to be an heir of God. You want to be a co-heir with Christ. Sounds great. And I think a lot of preachers would stop right there and say, go home and bask in your inheritance. And I want you to, actually, but not without a fuller understanding of how it comes about. Look at our second point here, a necessary condition. It's in verse 17. Let me read it to you. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided. If indeed, you may have the new American Standard. Love that translation. If indeed, or provided, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want to help you count the cost of discipleship this morning. Are there any formalists or hypocrisies among us? I pray not. This is a real condition here you're seeing in verse 17. It's real, not imaginary. It's a real condition that must be fulfilled by anyone Who would be an heir? You want to be an heir of God, a fellow heir with Christ. Here's the condition. Now let me take a moment and define the suffering that's in view here. What what does this word mean? What, What is he talking about when he says, provided we suffer with him? As one scholar notes, it is, quote, to feel or endure distress. Nobody in this room doesn't know something of that. I just know it. Because I live where you live. I live this, this, this side of heaven. I live in a fallen world, just like you do. I live in a body that is groaning, right? That is breaking down. I know what it's like to feel something of uh, distress. 
And that's what this word really carries with it, this idea of enduring distress. And we should know that the word is a present active indicative. Now, don't check out because I just dropped grammar on you. That's okay. This is really important. It's a present active indicative, meaning that this suffering is not a one-time event, but an ongoing condition that the Christian lives in. Provided we continue to suffer with him. This is an ongoing condition for the Christian this side of heaven. Let me try to define it still more by using the immediate context, right? Paul's helpful here. The idea is similar to what Paul develops later in this very chapter, particularly verse 23 as he relates it to to Christians, this idea of groaning. Groaning. You see it there in verse 23? And not only the creation, but we ourselves, you know, Christians, the ones who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's all of us in this room. We've got the Spirit. We groan inwardly. That is, we suffer. We feel something of the distress of a fallen world, right? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This word groaning is the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read this to you just to, just to fill this out. What is this suffering? It's a, it's a groaning this side of heaven. He says, for in this tent, 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 2, for in this tent, that is this body, we groan. We groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may, be found naked, may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. There it is. This suffering, this being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we long for, see. We're on these hills of difficulty, longing to put on life. The redemption of our bodies, right? The consummation of our salvation. It's what Paul's doing in Philippians 3 when he says we, we are citizens of heaven and, and from it, namely heaven, we await a Savior who's, who's going to come and, and transform these lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that allows Him to subject all things to Himself. See, we long for that. And until that day, we groan, being burdened as we await our final Salvation. So this groaning, this suffering, is the normal condition of the Christian as we live this pilgrim life on our way to the celestial city. One of the jobs of a preacher is to help you know what's truly normal according to the Bible. Because the world wants to turn the Bible upside down, right, and help you think worldly in worldly ways But the Bible says, wait a minute, this groaning, this suffering, and some of you are are helped by this right now, I trust. This is gospel. You're saying, okay, this, this isn't abnormal what I'm feeling. This distress that I'm enduring and have been enduring since I became a Christian, this is normal. Yes, it is normal. Peter says as much, right? In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, to some of the saints and his day that might have been thinking, this is crazy, what's going on? He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, wait a minute. Fiery trials are something I might be surprised by. 
and not real happy about. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's not strange, but it's glorious. Let me tell you this according to this text. I see it. Do you see it? Suffering is for glory. Suffering, this enduring of distress, this groaning that you feel even as I preach, is for glory. Don't lose sight of this. Paul wants it connected here in the text. Do you see it? In order that, verse 17, this glorious aina, in order that. Why do you suffer? In order that you might be glorified with him. Our suffering, brothers and sisters, is not in vain. Let me be quick to tell you, it is not in vain. Your suffering is for glory. Do you see it there in verse 17? It's just a restatement of the word inheritance. So not a new idea here, just inheritance, glory. You want that inheritance, it's provided you suffer with him that you might receive the inheritance or be glorified with him. See, suffering, think of it this way, is your gateway to glory. That's why you don't want to go around the hill of difficulty. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. What's on the other side of that hill ultimately? Glory. Your inheritance. See, suffering is a great gateway to glory. Because after all, who are we followers of? Christ, Jesus, and where did Jesus go? Well, his pathway to glory was through Calvary. There was a cross for him to bear before he rose and ascended in glory. Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand, but not apart from the cross. There was a resurrection but not without a death, right? And after all, we're followers of Christ. Remember Jesus, he told his slow-to-learn disciples in Mark 10, a third time in the Gospel of Mark, we're going up to Jerusalem, friends, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Now, after three days, he will rise. But let's get this straight, Peter and the others. It's not going to be apart from floggings, mockings, spittings on him, suffering of all kinds, blood that will flow, a death that will be born. And then he will rise. Remember Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it in a beautiful hymn, doesn't he? This, this humiliation before the exaltation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But it didn't happen apart from that humiliation of a death, even death on a cross. And one more, remember Jesus prophesied in Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. But the seeing and the being satisfied won't come apart from the anguish. We walk the way of Christ, don't we? We walk the way of Christ. We're disciples of Christ. And what does Jesus say about disciples in Mark 8, 34? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross and follow me. And what is a cross but an emblem of suffering and shame? And he says that's what a disciple will do. Deny himself, herself, take up their cross and follow me. In a word from Peter, 1 Peter 2 makes it very plain. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And his steps first went outside the camp and bore the reproach of Calvary. And then and only then did he rise. The reason this is hard for us, perhaps, in the evangelical church to relate to is because we're all Epicureans now. You know what I mean by that? We're all Epicureans now. As I look at, a, uh, at, at America, as I look out on the landscape of America and, and, the, and the landscape, the culture that we're trying to grow up in as Christians, we're all Epicureans now because America is really a bunch of Epicureans now. The church must not buy into the worldly lie that our groaning should be turned into laughter. The functional philosophy of 21st century Americans appears to be Epicureanism. The idea that pleasure and the absence of pain is the purpose of life. Right? Now, it doesn't take a philosophy major to look out there and go, that seems to be what America is running toward. You know, an, an absence of pain and a maximizing of pleasure in our days. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. We're all Epicureans now. And if you don't believe me, let me say it this way. You can just do a quick survey of a bunch of industries that have grown up in America in, say, the last 30, 40 years. We have whole industries that exist to help us laugh and banter and chuckle and relax our way to hell. All around us, if we just pause and just do a quick survey of these industries that have grown up around us to help us do those things, right? Laugh, banter, chuckle, relax on our way to hell. Take the entertainment industry, for one. I'll step on some toes here as a means of grace. It's disturbing to me that a big show that people seem to be entertained by today is something called The Masked Singer. Any of you watch that? It's okay if you do. I'm smiling as I say it. I hope you hear me. Um, but that's indicative of what's going on in our culture, that the masked singer is actually popular. Or how about networks that are growing up? Do you have Disney Plus? You can now live in Disneyland 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can go and just be in the park, Disney Plus. It's too many people's lives. They live at Disneyland. Life is not Disneyland. Disneyland has no hills of difficulty. Everything's fun, right? Everything's a fairy tale. Life is not a fairy tale. You know it, I know it. The devil would have you think it is. Go live in Disney Plus. 
It's not reality. Or the other morning, I was in a hospital waiting room. And I'd never seen it before. I knew of it. But I'm telling you, this is the downfall of America. Have you watched live with Kelly and Ryan? Oh, my. <laughs> They've got these big screens. You can't avoid it. And all these people are glued to it. And I'm not going to be that guy. So, hey, can I turn this off? So I'm standing there. And I'm watching this show. I'm thinking, every morning... Americans are watching live with Kelly and Ryan, and it is the most adolescent entertainment in some ways. Now, I'm sure there's something redeeming about it. I'm sure there is. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there is something redeeming about it, some common grace that's coming through Kelly and Ryan. I just don't know. I'll have to take your word for it. The entertainment industry would have us turn our groaning into laughter or the sports industry. I love sports. I love sports, so, but hear me now. There was a study uh, that revealed in a recent year, very recent year, Americans spent over 55 billion, that's a B as in boy, billion dollars in sporting events. Can you imagine? 55 billion dollars on basketball games, baseball games, football games. And that was back in 2017, Then we had a pandemic. I mean, what's it going to be now as we flock to these games? And don't get me wrong, taking my sons to the Seahawks-Colts game later in September, right? We're from Seattle. Go Hawks. So I, I, I'm not going all Puritan on you as if I'm just going to detach. But come on now, $55 billion, that's an indicator of where we're at. As a, as a country, here's a sports industry. How about the leisure industry, the leisure travel industry? I find this remarkable. I love these business stories. You know, back in 2019, do you know what Airbnb as a company was valued at? I love Airbnb. You've used Airbnb, right? Some of you own a, an Airbnb property, and you love Airbnb. This, this, this company, I can't believe it, and it's an indication of the leisure industry. As of 2019, it was valued at $38 billion dollars. $38 billion, Airbnb, that's just one, right? There's others like it, but one valued at $38 billion. Not bad for a company that began in 2008 with just $20,000 in funding in 2008. Here we are, 2019, it was valued at $38 billion. That tells you a lot of Americans want to get to Florida. <laughs> They're going to Florida, uh, the leisure industry. But, you know, it, it's not just Florida anymore, right? Soon you'll be able to buy your ticket to space. That's incredible. Want to go to space? For about $250,000, you could fly SpaceX, Blue Origin, or Virgin Galactic. Which will it be? A waste of money. <laughs> you be the judge. Tech industry. I worry about the tech industry and us, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. And it's addictive nature designed to help you escape your groaning until you wake up in the morning with that social media hangover only to grab your phone. Where's my phone? Open the app and get that sweet injection again to numb the pain of a fallen world. Some of you are doing that. It is your drug. And it's everything you can do just to get that app open so you can... Oh, you woke up feeling the pain of a fallen world and Facebook is helping you escape. Instagram is helping you escape. Twitter is helping you escape. TikTok is killing you with these one minute videos. And don't get me started on video games. 
and how they're not just for kids anymore, and that's been the case for some time, right? When the groaning gets acute, just turn on your PS5 or your Xbox and live in a fun virtual world. Just escape it all. Why is this so important, friends? All of this that I've just kind of, kind of set before you, all of this is like Mr. Worldly Wise Man in Pilgrim's Progress. Right? If you know the story, what he said to Christian when they met, what he said to Christian seemed so reasonable, so harmless, so comforting, right? That's how the world talks, such that all of its lies sound so reasonable because you think, oh, of course, or comforting. Yeah, just, why not just go around the hill? But in the end, Mr. Worldly Wise Man's voice is like a viper whose venom will kill you softly if you listen too long. Some of you are listening too long. Here's the big point. To take the cross out of Christianity is to leave you without Christ and therefore without hope. That's the point of all of this. You take the cross out of Christianity and you no longer have a gospel. Which means you no longer have forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. But only a certain expectation of judgment. Well, I want to also be quick to tell you this as we come toward the end. There is a grace greater than all our suffering. That was a heavy word. I know we're looking at this Paul, provided we suffer with him. But you know the song we sometimes sing, maybe you do here, grace greater than all my sin. That's true. It's true. But I want to write a new song. Grace greater than all my suffering. And there is, saint, you know that. Let me remind you of that via 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul has been begging God to get this thorn out of his flesh. Remember that text? He's aching under the weight of this thorn, this messenger of Satan that is buffeting him. He wants it out, and he's crying out to God. He says, three times I cried out to him, and three times I got this message. What did I get? I got this message from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, in your groaning, in your suffering. Your suffering is making way for my power, Paul. You don't worry about that thorn. You worry about my power resting on you. My grace, it is sufficient for every hill of difficulty you will climb. Let me try to illustrate this fairly briefly. I think I have time. Uh, I don't know if I've shared here that it was just nine months ago that I had major heart surgery. I think I might have shared this last time I was here. I had two faulty valves, my mitral valve and my aortic valve, uh, leaking since birth, right? But they were mild leaks, so no big deal. They discovered them when I was in my young 20s, and I played sports all growing up, and I've run marathons since the diagnosis. And that, so it never held me back. But when I had the diagnosis, they said, you got these two leaks, your mitral and your aortic. Here's what we want you to do. Every year, come in and have an echocardiogram so we can see if these leaks progress. Because if they progress, we want to do something about them before they adversely affect your heart. I'm like, sounds good to me, <laughs> good idea. That's one way to get me to the doctor every year. 
So I would do that sometimes very faithfully, and then there were periods of time where I wouldn't, you know, get in there. But here I was in my late 40s, uh, and it was a year ago this month where I had an echocardiogram back in Louisville, and I had a hunch something was going on with my valves. Um, Up until then, they had been uh, designated moderate, so they had progressed from mild uh, to moderate, but they say with moderate, we're just going to let you go, no problem, continue to get checked. They get real nervous when they go to severe. (laughs) Okay, so mild, moderate, severe. So I go in last July, cardiologist in Louisville, and uh, Dr. Sam Donnie, he, he looks at the echocardiogram, and I'm looking at it too, and I'm a doctor, I'm not a medical doctor, so, but, but it's still so clear that it didn't take an MD to know that's a problem. And he says, yeah, um, your mitral valve, and this is his bedside manner, he says, your mitral valve is shot. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad I came today. This is great. Um, and I said, well, now, can we, can we define shot a little bit more? Can we... Um, like, do I need to like go right to the ER right now? I mean, <laughs> if I leave here, shot means like I could be driving and you know geyser goes off and, and I'm done. And he said, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, he's looking at this. And it's the mitral valve that's got his real attention. The aortic valve hadn't progressed much. It was still fine. He said, if not for the mitral valve, I wouldn't even be worried. You know, uh, you know, we might want to fix the aortic valve, but if not for the mitral valve, I'd just leave him. Um, but he says, I'm looking at this, and he goes, I think three to five years you should probably have that replaced. And they won't be able to fix it. He's like, no bedside matter. He's good. And they won't be able to fix it. They'll just have to replace it, so you're going to have artificial hardware in you and blood thinners the rest of your life. And I'm like, again, I'm like, thanks for coming today. I'm glad I can. Um, any MDs in here, look, if you're a surgeon or a doctor, um, you know, work on that. <laughs> you, 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 can be, you can be nicer. I'm not asking you to be my pastor, but I'm asking you to be a little more gentle with me. So... I leave there, and I come home my wife, Anna, and I say, Anna, yeah, not great news today. Um, Dr. Sam Donnie says my mitral valve is shot, and she's like, what? What's going on? And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. That's how I felt um, when he told me. But he, he, she goes, how long till we have to have surgery or something? I said, he thinks three to five years, but I'm not comfortable with that. I looked at the screen, and this thing's really leaking, uh, and he called it severe. It made the category, great. Uh, so I said, I, I'm going to get a second opinion right away up at Cleveland Clinic. Okay, one of the best cardiology hospitals in the world, and trading places with Mayo Clinic year, every year, who's going to get first? So one and two, one and two. So Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Sue uh, agrees to take, take me on as a patient, and I, I just love him and will always be indebted to him. He saved my life, I think. So I went up there. This was July where I got the news in Louisville, went up in August, August 7th, to Cleveland Clinic. They did their own echocardiogram because they seem to think they do them better than anybody. So they, they did their own echocardiogram, their own barrage of tests. And I sat down with Dr. Sue, and he's interpreting it for me. And he says, and he's very gentle, very good bedside manner. He says, oh, Mike, um, I'm looking at this, and I think we need to do an intervention before the end of the year. <laughs> I said, yep, me too. You're confirming what I was thinking. And he was, he, he was great about it, and he, and he proceeded to talk to me about the um, opportunity well, they'll probably have up there to fix it, not replace it, right? And... And he looked at the aortic and he says, now I, I wouldn't probably worry about your aortic valve, but as long as we're in, <laughs> like, as long as we're in like a car, as long as you have the car in there, you might as well fix the clutch. But if you see that, um, as long as we're in there, why don't we fix the aortic valve too? And I'm like, okay, sounds good. Now he goes, the mitral valve, I, I, I think this Dr. Weirup, who was going to become my surgeon, again, I, he's part of the team that saved my life, prolonged it anyway. Um, 
he's really good at fixing uh, mitral valves. Um, not sure if he'll be able to fix the aortic valve. Why don't we schedule another meeting? We'll meet with him after he has a chance to look at all your, your tests and things. So I come up a little bit later in September, meet with Dr. Weirup and Dr. Sue, and he looks at the stuff and he says, I'm very confident I can repair your mitral valve. I said, okay, what about the aortic valve? He says, I won't know till I'm in. I'm like, oh, don't say that. But that's what he said. He's like, it's a little trickier. Some of you know this, but the default is usually to repair mitral valves, and the default is usually to replace an aortic valve. It's just the more common practice. So here I am in October. They get an opening. I, they call me. I say, okay, coming up October to have my, my open heart surgery. And uh, I go in. Um, they do this seven-hour surgery, and I'm in the ICU, and I come out of the ICU, and that's an awful thing. Some of you wake up in the ICU, and they're just, like, shaking my leg. Mr. Pullman, Mr. Pullman. I'm like, what? What's going on? Um, say something. And I'm like, okay, stop grabbing my foot. <laughs> I didn't. I woke up. And here's Dr. Weirup standing like this. He's a very tall Swedish man and has this really incredible voice. Um, but he has this grave look on his face. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. Like, what's the problem? And I said, Dr. Weirup, do I have any artificial hardware in me? And then he says something as if, like, we didn't have the meetings before the surgery. He goes, oh, no, 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 of course not. Everything went perfect. <laughs> so, well, you didn't tell me that would be the case. He was able to repair both of them. Okay. Praise be to God. Very happy with that. Now, this all leads to this story, grace greater, right, than all our suffering. I'm in the ICU for a day. Then they move me to a hospital room, you know, the main hospital for four days while they monitor me and, and make sure everything's going okay. Those were tough days. Days. And then I finally get released, but they release you up at Cleveland Clinic to one of the hotels that's on the campus, and they want you to spend one night with a caregiver. So my wife was up with our newborn. See, uh, Henry was just, just, just a newborn, but she came up, wanted to be there and, and helping me, you know, like wheelchair everything. Um, so we're in this hotel room. Now, what was going on that night was, was, was awful. I, I got the biggest headache I had ever had in my life, and I guess it would class, classify as a migraine. And of course, this starts to really come on as the sun's going down, right? All these things happen at night, don't they? And, and I'm sitting there, and Anna's getting a little nervous because it won't go away, and I'm worried like there's some kind of aneurysm or some, some kind of bleeding or something going on on my brain. It was back here on the right side. I call my doctor. It's about... Uh, 9.30.10, I kind of hung on, and I'm on some meds, but um, he asked me some probing questions, and he says, I think you better go to the ER. They, they need to look at you. They're going to want to do a CT scan, because I can't tell you over the phone if you have bleeding on the brain, and we got to know. I was on blood thinners at the time, and so I'm like, oh, great, okay. So some of you are from Cleveland, no offense against Cleveland, but we go to the ER, and it's not in the nicest part of town. And we come in, and Anna, had to, she had to drive me, and of course, we've got to, we have to bring Henry. And so we come into the CR, and friends, I can't, all kidding aside, um, some of you have read Dante's Inferno. I, I'd never experienced an ER like this. I've been in a lot of ERs as a pastor, and then a couple times now as a, as a patient, and then with my children, but this, this was awful. I mean, it felt like, like hell in some ways. I go in there, and there's, there's people over here fighting, arguing that you could tell had been drinking, and and there's other people over here just moaning in pain in the waiting room. Um, other people yelling at the, at the nurses, when am I going to get back? When am I going to get back? And I come into this chaotic scene. My head is pounding, and here's my wife and newborn. I said, Anna, get Henry out of here. You just, 
I don't want you. You got to go home. I'll, I'll come back. I'll call you. And she didn't want to leave me, but she's even surveying the room going, yeah, we should probably go. It just didn't seem safe for her to be waiting in, in, in the waiting room. So I go back. They take me back. She goes home. Now we're, we're about midnight. And I go back there, and the moans and the yelling and everything is louder. There's patients in different rooms and screaming sometimes and yelling at the nurses or the doctor, when am I going to get seen? And um, police officers in there, because one of the situations, they had to bring the person in. Um, and I'm waiting, and the doctor finally comes in, and he's someone you would see in a movie. He just sits down on the stand, and he looks at me, and he says, get him back, get him back to a CT scan. So they put me in, and they run this scan. And all this is going on for, I mean, a period, I was probably at the ER for an hour until I got the scan, and then they got the scan, bring him back. I don't know what the verdict is. He finally comes in about another 40 minutes later while I'm laying there, hearing all of this going around me. And it's, it's just awful, I can't describe it. And he comes in and brings me this good news. He says, there's no bleeding on your brain. You're gonna be fine. I think it's probably an, an allergic reaction to the, what's called tramadol, it's this, it's this narcotic that is helping with, you know, with, with pain. But I'm having, a, it, it's actually causing pain. So I'm somewhat relieved, but still in a lot of pain. So in, in listening to this, another hour before I get my discharge papers, because they're so busy. And so all said, it was about 4.30, I took a shuttle back to the hotel, and I've been going through about four and a half, five hours of, like I said, Dante's Inferno, just, and my own just sense of, everything was kind of coming to a head for me, the heart surgery, everything and still in pain i come up to the hotel room anna lets me in henry's sleeping by god's grace and i sit down and i'll just be honest with you i i just lose it i just start weeping because i'm in pain i don't think i'm ever going to get better and they tell you you're really sensitive after open heart surgery anyway and i'm thinking back on the moans and the screams and and it just all just finally came to a head for me and i just kind of I hadn't, I hadn't lost it or anything in the time in the surgery, leading up to the surgery, my time in the hospital, ICU and hospital, but finally it's, and I'm hunched over and just on this couch and here's my poor wife going, what am I gonna do with this guy? <laughs> how, do I, how do I help him? And so, grace greater than all your suffering. She goes to this little mini fridge. She had prepared, like, had all this food and meals and she brings me a bowl of grapes green grapes. He says, eat these grapes. Just have a grape. I, I'm hunched over and I'm just a mess, you know, like all pride out the window. <laughs> I, take, I take this grape and I can't tell you, I've never had a better grape in my life. It, it, it was something like heaven sent. I mean, it was like manna from heaven. And I eat this grape and I was like, I had been like a plant that hadn't had any water. And literally, God met me there. He just dried my tears, gave me strength, and I sat up I've never had so great grapes. Just hugging my wife, saying, "This is amazing." And even at the time, we knew it as we moved into some prayer time. But even in retrospect, now I see he knew my suffering. He heard my groaning. He knew I was on a hill of difficulty, and he brought me grapes. He brings you grapes if you would have eyes to see. He does that. Those were gracious, heavenly sent grapes. As a reminder of promises like this, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Or this light momentary affliction is preparing for us what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what I felt, that's what I saw, that's what I believe those grapes were pointing me to. 
grace greater than all our suffering. So, Cape Bible, do not grow weary and lose heart as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Your GPS is not wrong. The hill of difficulty is the king's way. It is the right way. You know, sometimes you question, is it right? And men, we do this. Our wives never do, but we're looking. It can't be right. That can't be right. Let's just turn it off. Don't, don't do that. Your GPS of your heart is not wrong. The hill of difficulty is the king's way. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come, and there will be more. But praise be to God, for his grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and the privilege of being with these dear saints in Romans 8 to be reminded of the king's way, to be reminded of our glorious inheritance, to be reminded of what the path looks like to get there, that we might endure, that we might persevere, that we we might run with perseverance the race set before us as you, Lord Jesus, model for us what to do, despise the shame, and know that there's coming a glory that far outweighs it all. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.